Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 38, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of the recently released book, Spiritual Grit, and the two years ago book, Jesus-Centered Life, and I'm editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible. Uh, there's a kind of a common thread you can, I think you can find there. Uh, and here on this podcast, our name expresses also our heart's desire. We want to pay ridiculous attention to Jesus because when we do, we're transformed. I'm also, as you, if you listen to the last episode of the podcast, you, you know that I'm also on the creative team for a new resource we're calling Friends of God, a Discipleship Experience. It's a kit, basically, for a 12-session discipleship experience designed for small groups and churches or church classes or new members classes. It also can work in a youth ministry setting as well. We designed it so that either teenagers or adults can equally participate in this one-of-a-kind, unique, relationship-driven discipleship experience. And it's got all kinds of fantastic stuff in it, lots of cool video segments, in addition to a full-length produced documentary. It was produced just for this resource, which is incredible. It's the incredible story of an average person and their discipleship journey. So uh, we'll have a link for the Friends of God resource on our podcast page as well. But today we continue our September exploration into discipleship, what it really looks like to grow in our relationship with Jesus, and how we move toward maturity in our faith. And today we're going to explore something Jesus said that we have to do, but when he said it, he knew we couldn't do it and how that impossible request is really at the core of our identity as disciples. So it's just like Jesus. I mean, this is not the first or last time he, he does this. He asks us to do things that he knows when he asks it are impossible, but he asks it anyway. So today we're going to explore why he did that and why this particular thing is at the core of discipleship. And we're going to do all of this with our old friend, the Becky Nader, who joins us again for the first time in a couple of months. Welcome, Becky Nader. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Remember that voice? Some of you, <laughs> I know there's tears rolling down your cheek right now, just because you heard her voice again. <sighs> oh, it's been too long, Becky Nader. I know. You have it's not been, been on this podcast. Way so. too long. But you know, this will be this will give us a chance to catch up on your journey, your epic adventure, and also uh, to delve deeply into this very important core aspect of discipleship. So we'll we'll thread your story through the rest of the podcast today. You'll hear some more from Becky in just a minute. But let's get started by first diving into a story that Jesus told about the contrast between our accepted standards of relationship just sort of our default standards as human beings, what we think is fair and right, and how he contrasts those standards with the standards of the kingdom of God. I always like to refer to the kingdom of God as Jesus's home culture. And it's our home culture too. We've just never been there before, which is kind of funny because we are created to live in the kingdom of God. Our regenerated heart is at home in the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus has to translate for us this culture because we've never, it's not native to us. So this is really the primary reason he tells stories or parables. He's trying to help us to understand what the culture of the kingdom of God is like, what the norms and standards of that culture are like. So in this particular parable, it's a story that focuses on a major issue in our lives. It's forgiveness. So Taking offense, if you think about forgiveness right now in this in our culture today, uh, you could say that taking offense has become a, like an Olympic sport. <laughs> uh, our culture is just rife with examples of taking offense. In fact, I, I, I just thought of this. I, I'd love to stop right here, Becky, because you've been traveling and encountering so many new people along the way. You've had way, way higher incidents of new <laughs> than the average person. So 
what's your experience of traveling across the United States with the culture of taking offense? What, have you had, I know you've had lots of experiences of grace along the way. Uh, how have you experienced the current culture where people are quick to take offense? I think one thing that's really interesting is when you've been somewhere for a really long time and you have been around people who have had the benefit of getting no getting to know you as an adult and growing into becoming an adult um, and experiencing how you grew and who you became, people know you really well and they trust you. And so I think what's been interesting is going back to a place where you meet new people and that trust isn't there already or they may experience you in a certain way and assume that that, that experience of you is who you are. And so it, it's hard to start over with people to, to make new friends. I think especially as an adult, we, ha we have a lot more, like, you know, if, you have, if you've seen those, um, the, 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 there's a video that's been going around Facebook um, and it's like little kids getting to know each other as friends. And then they send these kids into a coffee shop to like try and use the same tactic with adults. And the whole thing was how easy it is for children to become friends and how hard it is for adults to become friends. And so I think that what I've experienced is that you have to, you have to just have some speed with people and you have to be gracious with them and you have to be gracious with yourself that it takes time for people to really know you. Yeah. And for those of you who um, have no idea about the context that Becky is talking out of right now, I'll just a real brief primer. So it was about seven or eight months ago now that Becky left a very, very difficult situation, a dangerous situation relationally here in Colorado and felt led by God to become part of the van life community. So she <laughs> retrofitted a extension van as a home, a home on wheels. And she started out west, not knowing exactly where she was gonna end up. She had a kind of a basic idea, but it was an adventure in every sense of the word. And uh, along the way, she stopped for a while in Bend, Oregon. And now she stopped for a really long time in Bend, Oregon. It's funny how the Holy Spirit guides and leads all he wants for us is to get started, to get moving, and then he has an opportunity to guide and direct us. And sometimes that direction is stop here for a while. So she's stopped in Bend, Oregon for a while. She actually moved out of the van into a, a very small apartment, um, and she has her own business going on, and we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, but this, this journey really has been a physical journey, but also a journey of the soul, I would say. And... Um, Becky's had some incredible, miraculous adventures already along the way, which we'll, I'm sure we'll hear about a few of those as we go on. But this idea of taking offense and holding on to unforgiveness, whether in the moment or long term, one of the reasons why this is such an important focus for a growing disciple is because um, unforgiveness can destroy us from the inside out. And we know who's the author of destruction. We know the enemy of God is described as an entity whose only thoughts 24-7 are to kill and steal and destroy. And he's discovered that unforgiveness is one of the greatest tools of destruction available to him. So Jesus directly targets this important leveraging area of our lives because he knows how volatile it is. So he tells a parable, a story that teaches that focuses on this very thing. Now it's human nature to take up offense. And of course our political environment and our technology environment kind of feed into that today. We're like hyper-connected with each other, but we're, we're less grace-filled in so many ways in our hyper-connections. It's a lot easier to flame people when there's no consequences. So uh, we also end up becoming sort of micro-advocates for our own fairness. We have a high fairness meter right now. If, if it's not fair, if you've treated me unfairly, our justice thing comes right front and center. It, I'd, I'd say we're kind of a nation with a chip on its shoulder. It's kind of become the norm. So when you make fairness your God, well, Jesus is certain to focus on that because A, 
he doesn't want us to have any other gods before him and b he understands how fairness and its focus on fairness and how offended we can get over unfairness he knows how destructive that is so uh, of course he's going to focus on this so in the old testament jewish law stipulated a high standard for forgiving someone who's wronged you uh, the standard was three times for the same offense that's a pretty tough deal if you think about person who has really wronged you would you forgive them three times for doing the very same thing so that was the jewish law standard and it's important to remember that as we plunge into this story so let's start out this is called the parable of the unforgiving debtor and it starts out with an encounter between peter and jesus this is in matthew 18 and it starts in verse 21 then peter came to jesus and asked Lord, uh, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Um, seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. So let's just stop there for a second. So think about this for a second. Peter, what Peter's doing right off the bat is he's well aware that the Jewish law says three times. So Peter's like being bold and courageous and big. Hey, Jesus, what about seven times? That's like one more than twice what the law requires. Uh, and, I, and I'm just the man for that, because Peter was always telling Jesus the big things he could do. So here Peter tells Jesus what he thinks is an impossible standard, like seven times for the same thing. And uh, Jesus responds by doing what he so often did. He's setting the bar so high for normal human behavior that we might as well be competing in a pole vault event without a pole. Jesus says, no, not seven times, 70 times seven. He's basically saying a boundless number of times. And he knows when he says this that we can't do it. I mean, I, you can just imagine the jaw of Peter dropping when Jesus says this. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. So the Peter standard for forgiveness is really difficult enough for us because we're broken and scarred by the harm we've experienced in relationships. But Jesus' standard for forgiveness seems completely out of reach. So, Becky, I know that um, forgiveness, holding on to things, taking offense, maybe there, there has to be a deeper way of expressing taking offense when mm -hmm. you've been um, terribly wronged by, by someone. It goes deeper than simply an offense. It mm -hmm. goes into destruction. Um, so this is an issue that you've had to deal with in a variety of ways. And I know for you, it's, it's coming, to kind of a, coming to kind of a head in some ways in your journey right now. Why don't you share a little bit about, to update us on your journey and talk a little bit about how forgiveness is a major theme for you right now. So I have shared this in past episodes, probably more than a year ago that I was, um, I went through a season where I felt like the Lord was calling me off of what I would call the doormat. Um, and I think sometimes when we hear this passage, it's easy to think, well, then what Jesus really wants me to be is a doormat that people walk all over. And that's not really what he wants for us at all. Um, and I felt really called to focus on just every relationship in my life for a, a, a long period of time and say to myself, stop being a doormat, Becky, and start taking your own power back and setting your own boundaries and being healthier in the way that you do that. But right now, this is where I'm at. I am in one month, I will be testifying at my husband's criminal hearing. Um, and that season is going to close finally. It's been a full year of having to deal with that. And a few weeks after that, my divorce will be officially finalized. Um, it took a trial for that to happen and they don't have those very often. So there's been actually about eight months almost of, of waiting for a trial date for that. Um, and as I'm coming back for a period of time to Colorado for these um, events, I've been thinking a lot about what it will be like to see my husband for the last time and to have to close that door you know closure right i'll have full closure by the end of that month and 
So I think my natural inclination is that I wanted to write a letter to him and give it to him that day that told him how much he wronged me and how horrible he was to me and how unfair it was. But I really felt like the Lord was nudging me to write a different letter. And so I've been working on that letter. I've rewritten it a few times and I've had to continually um, discipline myself to take, to not put the thing that I want to put in there. Um, But this letter needs to be about his cage that he's in and my opportunity right now to either push him further into that cage and lock it forever or give him the opportunity maybe someday if he can do that to come out of his cage and to experience what it would feel like to live a life without shame or guilt or worry. Um, And that is what that letter is about forgiving. It's about saying you're forgiven no matter how many times these offenses happened and how long they went on and how long I didn't know them and how horrible they got towards the end um, that I am going to release you from any shame or guilt over this, that you don't have to live in that anymore. So, and and even as you say this, you know, obviously those who know you well know kind of uh, the, the, the bulk of the iceberg underneath the tip that you just described. And so we know these things that have happened to you that you just referenced. A person that doesn't know you is going to think in the abstract about this. But when Jesus says, no, Peter, 70 times seven, um, certainly Peter was thinking of the, the terrible wrong things that had been done to him in his life. He was a small business owner. He owned a fishing business, so he certainly had betrayals and wrongness done to him. We don't know how epic they were, but when Jesus says this, the impossibility of it just explodes. And when you, Becky, think about your own life and these, these specific things that happen to you, and you, we hear 70 times 7, this is where the mountain seems too high. And to, to kind of give Peter and the disciples listening to this a flavor of what Jesus was trying to get across, he tells this story that starts in verse 23. So I'll read that and then we'll delve back into your story, Becky, and some issues around forgiveness that are important for us to focus on. So Jesus tells a story after he says, no, 70 times seven, Peter, and here's, here's how the story goes. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. And in the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned, to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him. And he released him, and he forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me, he said, and I'll pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Well, when some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. And they went to the king and told him everything that had happened. And then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Well, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Whoa. So the end of this little story is like, wow, did Jesus just say that? I thought Jesus was supposed to be a nice guy. Well, this isn't a nice guy story. He's trying to make a very extreme point about forgiveness. He's trying to, I think, plant this uh, standard in us in such a sort of uh, earth-shaking way that we never forget how important this is that he's that he's pointing this out. So forgiveness really 
is radically different from the way the world operates. And when Jesus tells us the test of our love is whether or not we love our enemies, you know, that this is what he says in, in Matthew chapter five, that, you know, anyone can love the people who love them. <laughs> the real test of if you have the kind of love that God has is if you love your enemies, he's really saying that forgiveness is central to love. You can't love your enemies unless you, you're in a posture of forgiveness toward them. Um, it's just not possible to do that. So when we think about the extreme nature of why Jesus is focusing on forgiveness, Becky, in your own story, why is this, what you're doing right now, you know, the shift in the letter that you're writing, why do you think this is so important to you and to Jesus in you that you do this? So the last year has been about getting on the road and resetting my life. There was just no way around it. I had to start over in my heart. I had to start over in my mind. I had to start over in my career. I had to start everything over. And um, what I'm feeling right now in my spirit is that that season is coming to an end with this next month. And that when that door closes, that I'm going to be able to move into a new life that is not about resetting. It's about um, abundance and it's about stability and it's about putting down roots. And I can't have anything that is on the other side of the door that's going to harm what I'm walking into. This is about closure for my heart and there isn't any way forward that will be healthy if I'm carrying this when I go through that door and I close it. So this is, this is as much for me as it is for what is best for Josh. What's best for Josh is to not have to carry shame and guilt through his life. Nobody should have to do that, um, no matter what they've done. And, but at the same time, I will be carrying the weight of that boulder all on my own if I decide to hold on to it when I move into the next phase of my life. You're kind of describing um, kind of a double-edged knife because the, the knife cuts both ways. Unforgiveness is, it cuts us, cuts against us, but it also cuts out toward the other. At the same time, it's wounding in, to both people. And so it, it, that helps to understand why Jesus is so extreme in his story as well. He understands what a destructive thing this is. It would be the same thing as like um, the difference between me uh, talking to my daughter, Emma, who's 15, about using a hammer and a nail you know, and that the, the kind of proper way to do that so that she doesn't smash her thumb. The difference between that and talking to her about use, properly using a chainsaw. So the hammer and the nail could hurt her thumb. The chainsaw could kill her. So the way that I talk to Emma about the chainsaw is going to be different than I talk to her about the hammer and the nail because the chainsaw has a greater capacity for destruction if it's not paid attention to. And here Jesus is using a chainsaw parable to try to get our attention and say, you should not play lightly with your unforgiveness. It is a much more destructive thing than you realize. You know what is also interesting, Rick, is that Jesus didn't come to me with this for a year. Hmm. He didn't ask, I, this has not been something that's on my heart that I've been holding on to, that I even knew I was going to have to come into. He did not bring this to me right away. Why do you think he, that is? Because he knew, because he is so gentle with us, right? So I had to go through healing. I had to go through grieving. I had to go through, there were a lot of realities that I had to adjust to. I was doing a lot of activities that were very important that I did them right and they needed focus and attention. And I think that 
he was waiting for the time to be right because he cares about us so, so much. And um, I think sometimes we actually push people quicker to do things than he does. Um, you know, in the, in the parable he tells, um, the, the king is outraged by his servant's behavior. But he's outraged. Think about this for now. He's not outraged because of the money he's out. The money was not that big of an issue to him because he forgave it rather quickly. Hmm. He's outraged by the violation of relationship that happened. Yep. And, the, and this uh, emphasis on unforgiveness and forgiveness is really a relational emphasis. God is a relational being. He's three in one. Even his very nature is relational. Everything about our relationship with him is boundaried by the, the difficulties and brokenness of relationship. And we live out our horizontal relationships with each other as kind of a metaphor for our vertical relationship with Jesus as well. The same issues we have in our horizontal relationships show up in our vertical relationship with Jesus. So when most of what Jesus has to say about um, the kingdom of God has to do with how relationships are handled in the kingdom of God, because relationships are the air we breathe and they will be in the kingdom of God as well. So central to this, to this parable also is extending to someone the grace we've also already received. So Jesus sort of upends our default assumptions about unforgiveness and revenge. In fact, I mentioned Matthew 5 before. He has a little teaching about revenge in Matthew 5, and it's one in, one in a string of teachings where Jesus essentially says at the beginning of his ministry, you've heard it said blank, but I say, and so what he's trying to do is say, your default human nature culture says this is what's right, but I'm going to tell you what the kingdom of God truth and the kingdom of God standard is. So in his teaching about revenge that's in starts in Matthew 5, 38, he says, you've heard the law that says that the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's quoting the Old Testament here. <laughs> He's co quoting Old Testament. <laughs> then he says, but I say, and the but means I'm about to tell you a different standard, but I say, don't resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Your suit in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. And none of that really makes sense unless you have a profound sense of your own indebtedness, of your own need for grace. And most of us uh, avoid uh, the humiliating, broken circumstances that drive us to understand our need for grace. We hate those circumstances, so we avoid them as, as if at all possible. But for those of us who are in it or have experienced it, we understand the, the kind of the, the nature of this parable in that what we've been given, that we've experienced and have been so grateful for, we naturally want to give out of that. So we're less likely to hold up a standard of fairness, to say, you know, that wasn't fair, and I have a bone to pick with you, and that it's not that there's no justice and judgment, but that's held in tension with this lean toward grace. And what Jesus is trying to point out here is, if you receive grace, um, and, and desperately so, but then refuse to give grace, even when the act of you giving grace is far less than what I've given you, then I'm going to hold you to account for that. That is a violation of relationship. So I, I sometimes think about the, the lyrics to Amazing Grace, that song that we all know and love. Have you ever thought about how, how much we lie when we sing that song? Because we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I sometimes would like to stop in the middle of a song and say, everyone who feels like a wretch, raise your hand because <laughs> most of us don't on an everyday basis. We don't feel like a wretch. So when we sing that song, we're just singing the words. We don't really live the reality that, wow, I really am a wretch saved by grace. Mm -hmm. It's when you're able to say that 
with your whole heart that you start to think about the grace that you give others and unfairness and uh, the chip on your shoulder take less of a prominent place in our life. It's really not amazing grace until you understand what you've been given and why you've been given it. And that's maybe a good place to pause here too, Becky, is um, I know from the stories you've told me, you've experienced grace over and over again. How, how has the grace you've experienced so far on your adventure, how do you think that has led into, fueled into, funneled into what you're now about to do with uh, relative to forgiving? How, how has the grace you've experienced fed into your desire to let go of unforgiveness? I think um, this entire journey has been so guided for me. And even the harder things that I've had to experience have been about healing. Um, and the blessings that I have experienced have been about healing. Um, they've been about showing me that God is here and he is working and he is very close to my life right now in all of the steps that I'm taking and every single part of it. And I feel like I am getting so much freedom um, in every aspect of my life. I'm getting so much freedom. I'm getting to a place with my business where I'm starting to experience financial freedom. Um, I have gotten to a place in my heart where I've experienced um, love in a way that has given me freedom in my heart again. Um, I've experienced hope in a way that I have been given freedom to hope again. And for so long, all of those things were off the table. They were managed expectations. And um, I feel so much blessing on my life right now. And I feel like I'm just being given to abundantly over and over again. And for the people who walked day by day with me through this the last year, it probably felt like every week, like who knows what's going to happen because that's actually what it was more like every day. Like, well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make enough money to live in an apartment. Um, I don't know if I'm going to, be able to even get an apartment because of all of the circumstances. I don't know if um, I should take certain steps in my life right now or if I should wait. Um, but what I've seen is that all of the choices and everything, they, it just kept leading to the right path. And that if I got off the path, it was very, very quickly that I was right back on. And um, I just feel like everyone deserves that and that our purpose in this life is that whenever we can, like we should be unlocking cages for people that if it's in our power that we should be doing that. And, and we can't control whether or not they'll decide to get out. Um, we can't control whether or not um, their heart or their mind will be open, but it's, it's our purpose to take, the opportunity anytime we can to unlock people's cages and forgiveness is such a huge way that we can do that because when we lay down our pride and we lay down our own physical and emotional needs for someone who has harmed us and who knows that they have harmed us there's just no better way for the holy spirit to just unleash in that moment um, it is a powerful opportunity that we can take and it's, it's defining the core of who we are. Yeah. I, I so resonate with a couple of things you just said. One, one thing right there at the end is that we, we never feel more satisfied and fully ourselves in life than when we're acting and talking like Jesus, that this is the deepest connection we have to our true identity when we are doing something in the spirit of Jesus, and I mean that specifically in the spirit of Jesus, we feel congruent 
to the deepest place in our soul because we were created to be uh, uh, basically miniature versions of him, to have the same heart and soul as Jesus himself. So when we act and do things like he does, we feel this deep congruence. The other thing I loved about what you said is, um, I think this is so true, um, we do have the key to the lock for many people's cages. And we can turn the key and open the cell door, but we are our calling is not to drag them out of their cell door whether or not they want to come. Our only, our only gift is to unlock the lock. Then it's up to that person as to whether they will walk through that door into freedom or not. And sadly, this is the, true of the human condition, Jesus is also faced with this same challenge. He will not drag people out of their cells. He will unlock the door, but then there has to be, what, what faith and trust means is that I will walk through this open door now. I will walk toward freedom instead of stay in my captivity. We are not dragged into freedom. We are offered the opportunity for freedom. And what we do when we forgive is we unlock the door for someone. And then the invitation for them is, will you walk through it or not? That's not our responsibility, that part. Yep. So I, uh, we know that, as you've already kind of mentioned uh, at the beginning, Becky, that everything's new for you. You're about to step into a new season, and there's so many newnesses <laughs> in your life right now. One thing that would block all of that is the toxicity of unforgiveness. It would literally form a wall the, an impenetrable wall to moving into the new territory. It, it's, it's, it's a blockage. So uh, I, was, I was just thinking about some examples from just my life in the last week and how I've experienced others who, are, who seem locked in unforgiveness. And I think about uh, when I was in Kenya for uh, uh, almost two weeks, um, toward the end of our time in Kenya, we had a kind of a debriefing time with our team and we had had for the most part when we were in Nairobi for most of this experience, we had two drivers that were uh, hired and dedicated to driving us wherever we needed to go, whatever time of the day we needed to go there. And pretty much every day we were with these two drivers taking us somewhere. And I was just flabbergasted by the miraculous way a professional driver in Nairobi drives because the traffic is un freaking believable it's it's like there are no lanes and it, it's it's like watching blood platelets flow through a vein they, everything's just mixed together and somehow people don't die in this traffic it was just incredible well at the end of our time when we we're debriefing and and our team leader was asking us you know what are some things you really liked about the trip and what are some things you didn't um, one of the team members spoke up and said uh, basically I wasn't happy with our drivers because they made a wrong turn once or twice and they should have known where we were going. These are places that everybody knows. I, I don't understand why they didn't know what turn to take. Well, these two things that she was talking about maybe uh, cost us two or three minutes. Um, and then the other complaint was that one day uh, one of the drivers needed to stop at a gas station to fill up. And what she said was a professional driver should already have the vehicle gassed up before they picked us up. So I'm listening to this and I'm, I'm thinking, man, I really can't believe I'm hearing this right now. And I just spoke up and said, I, I thought the drivers were amazing. But the first thought I had was about the person who offered these two critiques. And I thought, I felt a deep sadness for her because I felt like she was locked up in this, the exacting nature of, hey, these guys didn't do everything exactly right. It's a prison to be locked up in a world perspective where everything has to happen right because she's also expecting that of herself at the same time. That is a prison. I also thought about you know, this morning when I was driving up to, uh, to the offices here, I was caught in some you know, city traffic and there was a motorcyclist right behind me, but the car in front of me in the fast lane was not that far in front of me. I, I was following at a normal distance, but this motorcycle was right on my tail. And I, the traffic noise was pretty loud, but I realized after the fact, I think he was honking at me. <laughs> I think that sound I heard was him honking at me. So eventually though, he, you know how you can see when somebody's riding your tail, they suddenly switch lanes. He suddenly switched lanes 
and went two lanes over to sort of get off the highway. And as he passed by me two lanes over, he flipped me off. And my first thought was not how offensive that was to me, but how locked up that guy was. I thought, what can be happening in that guy's life that this thing that just happened made him so angry and enraged that it was okay for him to do something profane to me? What could be happening in his life? Well, that's captivity. Um, uh, I, I remember uh, a couple days ago, I was at Costco and I got this big kind of flowering pot in my basket and I was pushing it into the parking lot. It was so big, I couldn't see in front of me. And so I was pushing it across a little lane and I realized late in the game that my cart had gone kind of across the, the front part of a car that was stopped there. And the woman just like a foot away from me just glared at me. And I realized, oh, she was mad at me because I, I went and pushed my cart across the lane and didn't see her. She was just so angry. Her whole face was contorted. Again, I thought, wow, she is in a cage right now. This didn't really hurt me in the end. I'm going to forget about it. Um, but the, what will stay with me is the captivity I saw. So one question, Becky, I think that, that kind of raises itself pragmatically about all this is, you know, all of the people I just mentioned, it's not like they didn't have an excuse for a complaint, right? So um, God is both full of grace and full of justice. So how do we walk the tension line between justice and grace. How do you do that right now? I go and I testify in court. <laughs> and I, I tell the truth about what happened and I allow the court system to decide the sentence for that. And I see that through and I am doing that. That's justice. A wrong was done to me. And so you file the charges and you stick with them and you spend a year dealing with the court system and you go and you get justice. You get out of the marriage, you get divorced, you leave the abuse, but you don't have to do that and stay in a place where you hate that person for the rest of your life, where you blame them for everything in your life and all of the changes that have happened. And you don't do that by name calling or back talking or gossiping. You simply let that person give them back to Jesus and you give them the opportunity to have forgiveness so that they can also maybe move on and make different choices for their own life. And there's obviously, even as you, we're, I'm listening to you talk about this, there's no manual for this. You can't go out and buy a book or find the place in the Bible where it says specifically what Becky should do in this particular situation. There is no manual for it. Nope. But Jesus, uh, you know, the, the problem of unforgiveness or the problem of the need for forgiveness is relational. And the solution is relational. And in this case, the relational solution is guidance of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. It's the spirit within us that helps us when there is no manual for how to set the tension line between grace and justice. In some seasons of our life, justice is the focus, and it must be. In some seasons of our life, um, grace and forgiveness is the focus. And in some seasons of our life, that shifts from hour to hour. What we do in justice and grace shifts from moment to moment. And the only way that happens is by the guidance of the Spirit within us, where Jesus is helping us to navigate. Instead of walk a linear path or walk up a stairway towards something, he's taking us through a maze when we're blindfolded. <laughs> we're dependent and trusting in him to take the next right turn or the next left turn. And we have a sense of where the Spirit is guiding us and how to set the tension bar between grace and justice. I thought it would be good for us to kind of wrap up by kind of focusing on three things, Becky, that you sent to me ahead of time that were focal points for you right now in your journey. The first one is that we forgive others as a central way we, that we live out our purpose in life. And our purpose in life is to release people from their captivity to shame and guilt. We know this is our purpose in life because Jesus said, I have come to set captives free. That's my job description. 
And when we are attached and embedded and abiding in him, his job description becomes ours. We are also uh, uh, freedom fighters for captives. So your, your first focal point in your life right now is the reason we forgive others is that we are living out our central purpose in life. And you've already mentioned so beautifully what it looks like to, to unlock the prison doors for people and what a calling that is. The second thing you mentioned is that we forgive others to set ourselves free from captivity. And uh, that sounds like also a very present thing to you, a very present awareness for you right now that as you move into your new life, you must also set yourself free. Mm -hmm. So go ahead and say whatever you want about that. I just, the, the thing about forgiveness is, and you see this a lot, this, when you rub up against somebody who is so upset about a shopping cart or flipping people off on the freeway, they're holding on to something really, really deeply. And it usually it's actually a pain or something that happened to them and they're very angry about it. And, I and think it has the, nothing really to do with the shopping cart. No, or it, no. Yeah. And you're just seeing like the symptom of that and um, the behavior of that. But w divorce is such a time to hold on to blame. And I went through a lot of divorce as a kid. Um, and some of my parents or step parents did that really gracefully. And some of them did not do it gracefully. And to this day, cannot even speak about, um, the other person in any way that's positive. Um, and you see that and you realize that that person can never let go. They can never move forward, that they've been dealing with that for maybe 40 or 50 years now, and it's never going to go away. And I think that when you go through a divorce, it's very easy to feel justified in being like, well, look at what they did to me. Like, this is unforgivable. This is like beyond forgivable. And, uh, and there would, there maybe is people in my life or in their life that would say, yeah, I agree with you. What he did was unforgivable. Um, but that is a choice that you can make and you'll probably get plenty of support for it even. Um, but if you want to go on and have a free life and be able to love again and, and, um, be loved again, you have you have to give yourself that freedom and not put yourself in that cage. Yeah, so good. Let me mention one last thing before we close off here, which I thought was your third, your third focal point that you sent to me, which I thought was so good. We forgive others really fundamentally to thwart the schemes of the enemy of God who uses circumstances and to plant false beliefs about ourselves and about God and about others in us. And he intends to destroy us from the inside out. There's no doubt about it. And if we are fixated on fairness and justice as our salvation, then he understands that is central to the scheme of the enemy of God. And he wants to thwart that scheme. He does not want his beloved to be destroyed all over again, this time from the inside out by unforgiveness. So we thwart the intentions of the enemy of God in our life when we forgive. It's a brick wall for him. He gets no leverage once we've forgiven. And our, one of our missions in life is to remove leverage, possible leverage from the enemy of God. I love how Jesus, as he's pointed toward the cross and he's praying in John 17 to his father, and he basically says, um, the enemy has tried to test me, but he's found no leverage in me. Wow. He's the only person in history to be able to say, the enemy has found no leverage in me. And this is the life he's calling us to. This is what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, to live a life where there's no leverage for the enemy of God to destroy, because then you become dangerous for the kingdom of God. Things then really start to happen. So uh, this was a great conversation. Becky, thank you so much for your honesty and vulnerability in talking through 
uh, what's happening in the very moment of your life right now. It's easy to talk about things five years ago. It takes courage to talk about them right now. So thank you for that. Um, and by the way, uh, if someone wants to get a hold of you, uh, they're interested in having you uh, work with them as a consultant, as an advisor, as a creative person in the marketing realm. Maybe you could tell a little bit about what you do and how they can contact you. Yep. So I have been doing focusing on marketing, marketing consulting, and training, um, working with a pretty wide variety of different kinds of businesses and products and clients right now. Having a blast, actually. Um, and everybody I work with, I really like a lot. And, um, you know, Rick, when you're talking about uh, people who need things a certain way and they get down on you for every little thing, I've run into a few of those people and quickly let them go. And <laughs> the group of clients that I have right now, it's just there's grace given on both sides and everybody loves working together. And it's just been a blast. But my website is beckyharringtonmarketing.com, and that's H-E-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N. And you can find me on there. You can learn about, you can set up a free 30-minute call with me if you want to just chat about what your project is or your idea or if you have a business already. Love to connect with you. I, I do work with a couple of our podcast listeners, and it's a joy to be able to connect with you guys on um, what you're doing and what you're passionate about. So that's how you can find me. Excellent. Well, gang, um, we love you, those who are listening right now. If you haven't yet joined the Pigs Facebook community, uh, we'll have a link for that on our podcast page. Please do join. All you have to do is uh, ask to be invited onto the page, and it's a community of people who love this podcast and love Jesus as the central aspect of their life and want to be in conversation and in assistance with each other. So that's uh, the, the pigs page, we like to call it. Um, and you can find the link to that on our uh, website, paintridiculousattentiontojesus.com. You're, you're just going to find the podcast section there. And for this episode, it's season three, episode 38. You can, by the way, uh, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play or anywhere you get your normal podcasts to make sure that you never miss one. So please do that and we'll we'll talk again next time and uh, look forward to the next time we have the Becky Nader on as well. Bye.